listening to SBS On The Money with Ricardo Gonsalves. Hi everyone, it's a daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Friday, the 9th of December 2022. A later guidance on self-managed superannuation funds change. But first, for a report by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, which has found that many super funds are just taking too long to respond to member complaints with serious ramifications. For more, I spoke earlier with Xavier O'Halloran. He's a director at Super Consumers Australia. Xavier, what does ASIC's report find about complaint waiting times at super funds? Yeah, so ASIC's report has found there's some real problems at superannuation funds in the time it takes them to respond to complaints from consumers. We're seeing a lot of funds taking more than 45 days to respond to a complaint. That's across three of the funds they looked at in particular. In more than 20% of cases, they were taking that long. That's a huge amount of time for a consumer to wait, particularly in more simple cases where they uh, want a simple response to a, a complaint that they've raised. So can you run us through what exactly is a legal requirement to respond and how must it be done? Yeah, so superannuation funds have 45 days to respond to a complaint that one of their customers have raised, um, and they're required to respond in writing as well. Now, that's quite generous compared to, say, banks and insurers who only have 30 days. Uh, This is something superannuation funds have lobbied for, but we've found out through this research that they're not even keeping to those longer, more generous timeframes. Okay. Do we have any idea what they're complaining about? Yeah, so we know from the complaints that end up getting escalated to AFCA, which is the Financial Complaints Authority, we don't have uh, data on what is being complained about internally. But when they do get escalated, it's often things like the quality of service, the time it takes to resolve a complaint, which is exactly what we're looking at here, uh, and things like administration errors on accounts. So that could be you know, the wrong amount of a fee charged or something like that. And also uh, complaints about denial of insurance claims because insurance is also bundled with superannuation. Okay, so can you run us through why it's important to respond in a timely manner? Yeah, it's really important for funds to respond in a timely manner to these types of complaints because we know that uh, the longer they go on, the more likely people are to just give up. If you're having to wait months and months and you can't get a response out of your superannuation fund, you may just put it in the too hard basket. And for people that have really legitimate concerns and problems with their superannuation fund, that's just not good enough. And I'm assuming there's also um, uh, financial implications as well if they're if they're wanting to make um, investment decisions based on these complaints. Yeah, that's right. If uh, the complaint goes on over an issue that might be a change in investment option or a fee that's being charged, people could continue to see money draining out of their accounts or lost investment opportunities or changes in the amount that they're drawing down in their pension phase. And this can have real tangible financial impacts on people as well. Finally, how do we improve it? Yeah, so the good news is ASIC found one fund was actually doing really well and dealing with 99% of its claims within the timeframe. And the reasons why, uh, they made individual staff in that fund accountable for resolving complaints in a timely manner. They escalated them and any complaints that looked like they were going to be delayed for too long, they would intervene and prioritise and get resolved quickly. 
We also need to make sure there's more transparency around these internal complaints. At the moment, we don't know how each of the super funds stack up. We just have these broad data uh, coming out of the regulator that there are problems at some funds, but none of them are actually named. So greater transparency will help consumers keep these funds accountable. Xavier O'Halloran there from Super uh, Consumers Australia. Now, separately, ASIC has also upgraded its guidance for advisors working on self-managed super funds. It previously suggested a minimum balance of $500,000 to be competitive against regular super funds, and that's because it says there are other factors which also drive suitability. And while it hasn't specified a new minimum requirement, it pointed to research from the University of Adelaide, which suggested $200,000. That takes us to the Australian share market which finished the week on an up note, the 200 up by half percent to 7,213. Earlier, I spoke with Matt Sherwood. He is an analyst at Perpetual and first asked him about just how significant next week's American CPI and US Federal Reserve decision on interest rates will be. The big significant events of the week, uh, Ricardo, and really when we look back this year, um, the performance of inflation and how far central banks have had to lift interest rates into, you know, pretty deeply into restrictive territory now have been two of the key governing thematics um, for the entire year. Um, you know, and, and the releases next week just really, um, you know, continue that path where uh, markets learn, particularly around the Fed, uh, what they're planning to do. Um, so the expectation is the Fed will lower the pace of monthly hikes from 75 basis points to 50. Um, I, I think that expectation is well-founded. But probably more interesting for the market is going to be the statement of economic projections and uh, where they will get, provide their latest update of what is going to be their terminal rate. Now, in September, they were thinking it was 4.6%. Um, uh, before that, it was 38 So they they have lifted this terminal rate forecast for about the last four quarters. And my suspicion is they're going to lift it again to uh, to 5.1%, um, you know, and, and that really has the potential to, um, you know, to impact markets. So it's higher rates for longer then, right? What, what are the implications for that? Well, I think um, uh, the, the Fed has been very deliberate in its guidance is that rates are going higher and they're going higher for longer. So I think the only way you get an interest rate cut in 2023 in the US um, is if you have a recession. And um, that is our base case. Uh, we tend to think the most aggressive hiking cycle since Volcker in 1980 um, is um, is likely to lead to a US uh, contraction, uh, probably beginning, um, you know, in the June quarter this year. So we, we tend to think a lot of the lead indicators to the US are now rolling over, uh, you know, their traditional good recession signs. So to me, the tracks are starting to get laid. Um, and if that's the case, the key is going to be um, how much the Fed can ease rates by, um, and the governing dynamic there, of course, is going to be where's inflation? Because if inflation's you know, above four percent, it may be very difficult for an anti-inflationary central bank, which targets two, uh, to actually to be cutting rates. So, you know, there's a lot of unknowns uh, about next year. You know, when we talk about Wall Street, often it's said when Wall Street sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, right? So when the US starts pulling back the pace of interest rate rises, is that what happens with other central banks? 
Well, uh, the funny thing is, uh, this time around, the um, um, the Fed's kind of been the laggard in terms of winding in the policy uh, rate hikes. Um, policy had the central banks earlier this year were in a very collective group, running at full speed to get rates away from emergency levels into restrictive territory, and they've mostly done that now. So, uh, policy deliberations from here have become a bit more nuanced. Um, so the RBA to me is nearly done. You know, I think there's only one more rate hike um, and they'll be finished in February. Um, and the Fed's got more work to do on that front. But to me, uh, the vast bulk of central banks will will be finished their hiking cycles or the vast bulk of them, I should say, um, uh, by the end of the March quarter next year. I know we don't necessarily talk a lot about market moves, but is there anything that could come could come out of the states next week that could dramatically alter the way the share market performs next week? Oh well, you know, uh, markets um, uh, are driven by sentiment in the near term. So, um, you know, any activity data which shows activity is materially uh, weakening, um, or inflation which is falling a lot more uh, than expected, um, you know, they could send the market in opposite direction. So, if inflation's better than expected, you might see. Um, the market rally uh, because they factor it in, um, you know, a, a more dovish Fed perhaps. You know, if the data's uh, remain strong, um, you know, it, it will go the other way. So um, in the end, though, I, I still think the key for the market is the inflation dynamics of the U.S. economy, what the U.S. Federal Reserve has to do, therefore, and how will growth react. Um, to that policy backdrop. So, you know, uh, to me, there's a lot of noise in the short term, but in the end, markets do reflect the fundamentals over the medium to longer term, and that's really the key for investors. Final thing I want to talk to you about, we've spoken about the US. What about Australia's other major trading partner, China? Its economy seems to be reopening as COVID rules ease. How significant is this? Well, I think what's been happening in China in the last months has been very highly significant. And to me, they've taken out the left tail risk um, for 2023 uh, because three things have happened. Uh, first of all, there seemed to be a much more friendly rhetoric coming out of Beijing, uh, not only towards Australia, but to you know other key countries such as the US. Uh, that's an important step, even though you know uh, it may be all for show. Uh, the second thing is that they are providing more support to the construction construction sector, which is one of the real lead weights in their growth saddlebag. Um, and the, uh, the third thing, as you mentioned, is the uh, you know, they seem to be laying the tracks to walk away from their COVID zero policy. So in the second half of the next year, I mean, in the near term, China's probably going to have um, some pretty uh, significant downside risk because if they let the virus rip through the economy, then obviously there's um, it's going to weigh on activity um, until the point where they build up the herd immunity. But in the second half of next year, when we're expecting that a lot of the global economy will be in recession, my suspicion is that China is actually going to be ramping up its growth. Um, and that's going to be a very good counterbalance, not only for the global economy, but particularly for an economy like Australia. Um, so, uh, to me, uh, that w- will be one of the um, rare balancing items, um, Chinese growth against the US recession. So, you know, th- that could cushion the global economy a bit, give a bit more optimism to markets. Um, you know, so overall, they certainly have 
uh, begun to walk away from some of the more um, draconian policies, which uh, which were really weighing on their growth potential. And that's going to be good, I think, for everyone. That is the head of investment strategy at Perpetual, Matt Sherwood. This SBS On The Money podcast is provided for informational purposes only. The content on this podcast should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision.